Welcome to American Political History, Season 1, Closing Editorial. Let's talk about the Native Nations for a moment. They have layers to their culture that at first sound confusing, but are easily relatable to the Western cultures that we are more familiar with. The first layer is that of language groups, areas that share a common root language, like English or Germanic or the Romance languages, but are not a part of the same national culture. Spain, that speaks a variation of a Romance language, and Italy, who speaks a variation of that same language root, don't necessarily share the same culture and ethnic identity. The Algonquian language root of North America covered a seemingly random and sordid area, much like European languages do today. It was shaped by trade, war, and other historical reasons that are, in the case of the Algonquian language, lost to time. So the geographic area that it was spoken seems random to us today only because of our ignorance. The Algonquian language was predominant in the areas of New England, Newfoundland, Quebec, the U.S. East Coast down to the Carolinas, Michigan, Iowa, the Great Plains around Colorado, and the general Great Plains of Canada. The next layer is that of the Confederacy of Nations. The Powhatan Confederacy was a group of around 150 individual nations that all worked within a hierarchy for protection and influence against other outside nations or confederacies. Not all native confederacies had strict hierarchies. Some had voting principles built into their systems. But then again, most kings of Europe in the 17th century had to get some sort of voting college or court or parliament to vote for them to be kings too. Even in the best cases, you didn't see anything like our universal suffrage today in the Americas or in Europe. And we have been talking a lot about the Powhatan and Wampanoag. Don't let their specifics become your stereotypes for all the nations of North America. Just as learning about the Spanish would not and should not teach you about the English. And the last layer is that of nations of people, or in today's common parlance, a tribe. The nations on the east coast of North America didn't have forts or stone castles like in Europe. Their societies generally roamed, moving from summer to winter areas with the herds and migration of animals, often leaving a few smaller groups of people to tend to the settlements until the return of the greater nation. And now, a little myth-breaking time. We think of this colonialization of European settlers as if it was like some random Asians today sailing to the west coast of California, plopping themselves next to the Hollywood sign and saying, well, nobody's using this lot, so this is our country now. The world then was nothing like it is today. The estimated population of all of the native nations of New England was around 2.8 people per square mile. North of New England and Newfoundland, a colder climate, it was about 0.4 people per square mile. Super. Those sure are some numbers. Numbers always need some context. Today, the population vastly outnumbers that 2.8 people per square mile. Rhode Island alone, the smallest state in the United States, has a ratio of 1,000 people per square mile. Massachusetts, 883 people per square mile. New Jersey, 1,200 people per square mile. If the native population of New England in 1600 was a country today, 
It would be at the very bottom of populated countries in the world, along with Mongolia and Iceland. And all of these stats are before the new European disease interchange would kill an estimated 60-70% to of the native populations throughout the 17th century. The idea that the English settlers had found unused land was not ridiculous. And the initial English colonies got permission to settle from the local nations. Not because of native altruism. Like any other people, they are motivated by their own needs. Local nations were excited to be able to trade directly with Europeans for their goods or make defensive agreements with the English against larger threatening nations of America. The myth we hear today that the English forced their way into native lands or started by just conquering the helpless native only works if we blend the events and lives of those in 1620 with the events a generation later in 1660 and a generation after that in 1700. These myths can only gain traction today because of our total ignorance of this time period. So here, on this podcast, let's not pretend that the motives of individuals in 1620 are the same as individuals in 1660 or 1700. The historical record is completely clear that the initial English colonies planned to establish friendly trade relations with natives, not conquest. The English also didn't invade. They settled with agreement from local nations. Now, when those relations soured, the English certainly didn't leave, and no reasonable people would have. Just as no one is leaving America today to give back the land to the natives. Moving on. I have been making a concerted effort to use the term nation, or the specific nation's name. Why should I find this so important? Well, terms like Indians and Native Americans strip the unique characteristics of the individual nations down into a caricature of peoples across an entire continent. They become props for someone else's mythology, politics, and history. Indians were helpless in the face of a European colonialism. Described this way, Indians don't get choices or actions. They're just a backdrop to English history, a set piece in someone else's play. Today, nations have been homogenized into Native Americans because the victors continue to write the history of a people that didn't have their own written history for us to fall back on. They lost both their territory and their place in history as unique actors. This is also what happened when the Romans conquered the Gauls. The Gauls are all of the peoples in modern-day France, England, Germany, Hungary, Poland, and anyone else the Romans didn't feel like describing. Those people, too, didn't have a written history, and the Roman victors got to homogenize all of those cultures of Western and Central Europe into the Gauls. The Aboriginal nations of North America get the same treatment today, with the added insult of a dominant society that wants to somehow be supposedly sympathetic and respectful. Yet, doesn't even trouble itself with learning the history to respect any of those native nations. And in our mythologies, we don't give their leaders individual actions, choices, or view them as crafters of that history. They're simply a backdrop to castigate the past generations of Europeans for being so barbaric. 
allowing today's generation of Americans to virtue signal back to themselves through hollow gestures of so-called respect to those natives. I thoroughly believe that we must revere them, like everyone else in history, by telling their story as fully-fleshed humans capable of brilliance and stupidity, brutality, and love. Having respect for someone in history is not done by letting their history be forgotten, or their individual contributions to that history be simplified into a caricature. Tusquantum was a self-interested, cunning, masterfully ambitious fellow, as he would use his role as the English translator to then demand tributes from many nations around Plymouth, or he'll bring the wrath of the English upon them. Eventually being caught in this deceit, his death was demanded by Massasoit, but the pilgrims, feeling indebted to Tusquantum for how much he helped them, protected him from Massasoit's vengeance. Massasoit was a king in any right in any history, leading his people through tumultuous politics between warring nations, aligning himself with a new opportunity at Plymouth and ensuring his nation's continued survival for another generation. These people are people who are complex, empowered, who are fully fleshed individuals, actors in our shared history. And what if I told you that in Virginia... Each of the Anglo-Powhatan Wars was initially started by the Powhatans, not the English. What if I told you that the Powhatan didn't want to drive Jamestown back into the sea? They wanted to put the English into a small, cornered box to make them dependent on the Powhatans' cultural structures for their survival, to dominate Jamestown as their tributary. This doesn't sound like the myth of the ignorant, simple people who are just outsmarted by the dastardly English. It sounds like a king or chief that could fit into any history, fighting wars over the things that all wars have been fought over for millennia, power, control, and wealth. So what did the English culture have going for it that made it eventually the superior culture in this Darwinian struggle? First, trade was very lucrative for both sides. Whoever controlled the terms of trade within the North American seaboard would become fabulously wealthy. But the English had all the naval technology, so they were always going to be able to set the terms of trade. They had other options. If the trade was not in their favor, they could move locations, negotiating with other nations. Second, there is no reason for the Powhatan to expect or plan on Jamestown lasting more than a few years. Up until that point, all of the dozens of European settlements in North America had only lasted a few years, with success being measured as a stable, seasonal fishing or trade post. Understandably, the Powhatan were happy enough at first to trade directly with a new English trading post in their territory, welcoming the settlement. But as Jamestown expanded and was growing permanent roots in what the Powhatan considered their sphere of influence, they revoked that welcome. These tensions were compounded because Jamestown had also rejected any suggestion of arranged marriages that would tighten the bonds of friendship between the two cultures. And this wasn't a cultural misunderstanding. Arranged marriages of this kind were a traditional custom for both cultures. This action clearly signaled, and was interpreted rightly by the Powhatan, that the English viewed them not as a long-term trade partner, but as a partner of convenience. Third, 
The native nations of America were not unified allies, cultures, ethnicities, or peoples. It was similar to the European continent, where everyone was some type of rival with each other, or you were just someone else's, you know. But this cultural struggle was not just between Jamestown and the Powhatan. If it was, then the Powhatan would have clearly won. It was Jamestown with the backing of a European kingdom. Jamestown might have been outpopulated 5 to 1 against the Powhatan, but London alone had a population equal to all of the native nations on the eastern American seaboard from Florida to Newfoundland. A simple fraction of the resources of England would change the equation in the struggle between Jamestown and the Powhatan. Fourth, war cultures and the value of life. Native wars tended to be about striking hard and negotiating a favorable peace. Now, this wasn't some moral judgment of the rules of war. It was simply a reality of their demographic numbers and economic resources available in the New World. Simply put, if most nations lost too many warriors, even in victory, they would struggle to fend off starvation for their people. The pattern of traditional native warfare was battle, ending in a one-sided stifling peace, battle against that peace, if the loser loses again into starvation, battle from starvation, extraction of even more tribute that would eventually lead to the enslavement and incorporation of that inferior nation. Europe, as I have mentioned before, because of the brutality of the Reformation, fought to end wars. Wars of attrition, or in today's parlance, total wars. War where you burnt the town of your adversary to the ground enslaved their civilian population and sold them somewhere else in the world, and otherwise destroyed any ability to resist you in the future. The other part of European war culture was that victory was paramount over lives. Lives were simply a cost to be paid to ensure victory. This might sound weird, but a major English advantage was that it had lots of lives and spent them without hesitation. The Powhatan at the start of the First War would initially inflict devastating blows upon Jamestown. In their war culture, this was a very successful start. But what the Powhatan didn't really understand was that in the eyes of the English leaders, all they had just done was inflict losses on what Baron Baltimore would term the scum of the earth in reference to the English's lowest castes of society. The English culture had a hierarchy of the value of life. The lowest castes had a cheapness to their lives that the natives were unfamiliar with. The English leaders would spend however many lower-caste lives it took in order to win these wars. And the loss of life inflicted by the Powhatan only served as a political tool to motivate and fuel the anger on all levels of English society towards the Powhatan. This successful surprise attack would not go to the negotiating table with the English. This would become a long war of attrition that the native culture and economy was not geared to win. Fifth, even in peacetime, the English culture would have the advantage. The introduction of the English trade economy devalued native commodities, except for cash crops. This was because the English had domesticated farming technology which yielded far more produce than that of native slash and burn farming. This meant that each English farmer would quickly outproduce native farmers, which devalued the exchange of goods between the English and native agricultural commodities, 
Without these agricultural commodities to trade, the natives would be left trading furs and land. Both of these commodities are finite, meaning that as individual natives traded them away, that individual would become wealthier through the trade, but the whole of the native economy was losing assets and becoming less and less wealthy. Take this example. A nation trades some land, not a huge loss, for some shovels. They now can produce a little bit more tobacco and food on their farms. The Virginia colony receives 100 acres of undeveloped land. They invest into this land, making it a tobacco plantation. The English output of this land is exponentially larger than that of the native gains for the tools. This is not because the trade was unfair or foolishly structured. The natives would have valued this small portion of undeveloped land, typically their worst lands, as equal to the value of these exotic metal tools. But the long-term gains had different economic outcomes. A new tobacco plantation is a reoccurring investment that continues to produce year over year. While those tools might allow small gains in the short term, they would eventually break and need to be purchased again. Simply put, the long-term investment power of the English economy was vastly outproducing the native nation's economic gains through trade. Once the English economy had established itself in the Americas, the native economies would become dependents to the larger English economy. These economic factors would slowly lead to the native nations in a state of destitution. When after a generation they had used up their commodities like furs and lands, had lost their shared regional resources like hunting grounds to the disruption of English settlements. They then would be forced into tributary relationships with the English or interior native nations, entering a civilizational death spiral that resulted in fitful wars or silent cultural suffocation. When I look back, I see many proud and glorious native nations of America who were simply not in an advantageous position to the currents of history of this collision of cultures in the 17th century. So I'll be paying my respects to the native nations by using my language to give them their due. As people and nations in our shared human history, I only wish I had more access to a written history so I could give you a more whole and fuller picture of their lives and culture. Thank you for listening to Season 1 of American Political History. If you have any feedback, comments, or suggestions, please reach out and let me know. Thank you again for listening, and until next time.